take your Bibles then, if you would, this morning to Leviticus chapter 7, and it is the plan for us to finish this chapter together this morning, verses 11 all the way through uh, 38. I don't have the stats uh, as uh, Pastor Luke did a few weeks ago, but uh, I do believe we'll be done chapter 7 this morning, and that will be the end of the offerings, our look at the offerings. We started with the five offerings. And then now in the back half of chapter 6 and through chapter 7 is a look at the offerings from the perspective of the priests. And then as we move into chapter 8 next week with the consecration of Aaron and his sons to the priestly ministry, we move in a different direction, although certainly still connected. We can need to understand the theme of the book of Leviticus. How does a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? And that is the reality that we have before us in our look through the book of Leviticus. Now as we think about Leviticus thus far, I want to ask, does the word joy come to mind so far in the book of Leviticus? You guys have read the book, heard the book preached, and you think, man, this is just amazing stuff. I wish this was still around today. This would be incredible. What joy comes out of these passages? Perhaps not. Perhaps our perspective has been one of uh, hardship, that these uh, offerings and sacrifices are arduous, they're onerous, you have to know what is holy, what is not holy, if you touch something that is holy and you're not holy, now you're not holy, and then you have to offer a sacrifice and there's sin and guilt and all of these things, and it just seems a bit much, perhaps, to us up to this point. I hope that I can change that perspective for you this morning. Because there's a reason why Moses, in writing this, has changed the order of the offerings. In the first five and a bit chapters of the book of Leviticus, or up through, I guess, a bit of chapter 6, the five offerings are presented to us in the order of the three that are voluntary and then the two that are necessary. So the peace or fellowship offering came in position three of five in the previous uh, iteration. But now as we come into the priest's perspective, the peace or the fellowship offering is last. And I think there is a good reason for that. Again, as we read through the whole book of Leviticus, we can come away with this feeling of dread. The same feeling we had going into the book of Leviticus. (laughs) That still continues. But we miss, I think much of the joy that is here. And we will get into this as we continue the book of Leviticus. There are feasts prescribed for the nation of Israel that are to be observed annually. There are, a, there are rhythms in the book. The Sabbath is a weekly rhythm. Reappeared again for us in our Bible reading plan just this morning in the book of Exodus. The Sabbath, in fact, is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant to the nation of Israel. This is the sign. It's the Sabbath, a weekly day Dedicated to God, a rest from regular activities. There's an annual Sabbath, or I should say a Sabbath of years, that one in seven years was to be taken as a Sabbath to the Lord. And then there's a generational Sabbath. One in every 50 is the year of Jubilee, which we'll get into as we go through the text. There is so much joy when God is present. And God here in the book of Leviticus is present with his people. He has moved from the mount, Mount Sinai, into the very center of the encampment of the Israelites. His presence is there. And God's presence always brings, among other things, joy. 
But you could be excused if up until this point you haven't seen much of that from the text. So my hope is this morning as we look at this text, we will see joy jumping off every part of this fellowship or peace offering. Follow along then with me, if you would, as I read verses 11 through 18. We're not going to read the entire passage this morning, just verses 11 through 18, but we will cover it in its entirety, Lord willing. Leviticus chapter 7, starting to read at verse 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, Unleavened wafers smeared with oil and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of, uh, of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. This is the word of God. Did you see all the joy in there? Perhaps not yet. Bear with me if you would. And so in verses 11 through 18, we have the fellowship offering, the peace offering revisited. We looked at this in Leviticus chapter 3. Now we're back, but again through the perspective of the priests who are receiving this offering primarily. Although there is much in here also for the worshipers. There are three different types of peace or fellowship offerings that could be offered. In verses 11 through 15, there is the thanksgiving peace offering or thanksgiving fellowship offering. Most commentaries agree that this is probably due to an answer to prayer or a particular blessing received by the worshiper. So this is something that this individual has been praying for, praying to God about, and he has received the answer to his prayer. And so he is going to bring this thanksgiving offering. Thank you, God, for answering my prayer. Or thank you, God, for blessing me in this specific way. Something that he'd been waiting for. Something that he'd also been praying for, asking God for, and God came through for him or her. This thanksgiving offering implies joy. Gratitude, which is an expression of joy. Thank you, God, for what you have done for me. In the second place, then we have the vow offering, verse 16. This then comes at the end of the completion of a vow. So someone has said to God, if this happens, then I vow that I will do this. There could be a Nazarite vow, which is a more extended vow, or a vow similar to the vow that Hannah makes about her uh, son-to-be, Samuel. She is infertile up to this point. And so she asks God for a child and tells God that if God gives her a child, she will give that child back to him. And upon completion of that vow, she takes Samuel to the temple and gives him into the care of Eli, the high priest, and there offers a peace offering, a fellowship offering, a vow completion offering 
at that point. Again, cause for thanksgiving, cause for celebration, because a vow has been completed, which also means that God has been faithful, which God always is. Lastly, in verse 16, there's the idea of a free will offering, verse 16. If it's a vow offering or a free will offering, this is someone who is overwhelmed by the goodness of God and out of a heart of joy and rejoicing for what God has done, not something specific that has necessarily been specifically prayed for or something that God has specifically provided, but just a general sense of thanks to God for the peace that God has brought them because of relationship with him as a fellowship offering. They just bring this offering and offer it to God. These are the three different types of offerings that can be offered to God of this kind, this peace or fellowship offering. But notice this whole section just oozes celebration. This is the only offering that the worshiper participates in, or I should say better, benefits from. This is the only offering that they get a portion back. There's a portion that goes to God. There's a portion that goes to the priests, as we will see in just a moment. But there is a portion that comes back to the worshiper. But notice the regulations. If it is a thanksgiving offering, thanks be to God for an answer to prayer or for a benefit or a blessing, the rest of the offering, after the fat has been given to God and the portion, the breast, and the right thigh to the priests, the rest of the meat must be eaten that same day. None can be left over to the next day. And in the case of a vow offering, vow completion offering, or free will offering, some can be eaten or the rest can be eaten on the second day, but not into the third. And so most commentators would agree that there is here implied the sense of a communal sacrifice. If you offer a bull to the Lord, the fat goes to God and the breast, the chest, and the right thigh goes to the priest, there's a lot of meat left over. And it has to all be eaten the same day of the sacrifice or at most the next day, any left over to the third day has to be completely burned in its entirety. There's an implied celebration here. When is the last time that any of us had a barbecue? And I'll finish that sentence, lest any of us despair. It's not just that we haven't had a barbecue. When's the last time we had a barbecue in celebration for something good God has done for us? When is the last time we just said to our neighbors, God is so good, let's get together and eat and, and celebrate God's goodness? When's the last time we did that? Maybe never? This is embedded into the sacrificial system of the nation of Israel. Isn't God good? Let's celebrate together. And because of the vast quantity of meat, it may not, if it's a bull, but even if it's a ram or a lamb, it's not just the family members, perhaps, but even part of the Israelite community. Come. God answered my prayer. Come celebrate with me. God is so good. Come celebrate with me. There is joy here in this offering. There is joy in the name of the offering. It is the peace offering or the fellowship offering. We have peace with God. We have fellowship with God. That alone ought to bring us joy, ought to remind us of the joy we have in him, and we celebrate because of it. This is the nature, then, of this offering. This offering just oozes joy, gratitude, thanksgiving to God. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to define what joy is. 
Many of us, I think, equate joy with happiness. And joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness is largely based on our circumstances and is almost exclusively an emotional response. Something happens or something doesn't happen or a memory comes back or something takes place and we are either happy or we're not. It can change, oftentimes very quickly. We can have it and then it can be taken away. This is happiness. Joy is much different. Now there's different types even of happiness. There's those euphoric moments of happiness. Perhaps your team has finally won and you have this rush of happiness. Now as a Leafs fan, I've never had that my whole life. But one day, one day, one day, I have hope that there will be that type of happiness. You just Maybe you went to a concert, your favorite band, or you met somebody, maybe a long-lost relative or somebody famous or something. There's that rush of happiness that can come. There's those euphoric moments, but that is not joy. And then there is happiness that is a bit more lengthy. It's, it, it's a more settled happiness. It's not an outburst of applause or yelling or screaming. It's happiness, but it's, it is that feeling there. I remember the, the, all four times that Mel birthed children, our children. Now, it wasn't the happiness. I didn't have a big foam finger and a, and a, you go, girl, you can do this. It wasn't that type of euphoric event, certainly not for her either. But there is a happiness that comes when your child is born and you hold this child in your arms. And it, it doesn't easily dissipate. It, it, it stays for a time until they grow up a little bit and then the happiness can come and go depending on the child or the moment or the season. So there's happiness. There's, there's bursts of happiness. There's seasons of happiness. But all of these, none of these, I should say, are joy. They're not the same as joy. And so allow me to share with you my definition of joy based on Scripture. I define joy as, and I believe God's Word defines joy as, a settled peace, contentment, and delight, ultimately found only in relationship with God that overflows with gratitude. Notice that word settled. Joy does not come and go. Joy is given by God and cannot be taken away. Joy is foundational. Joy is deep-rooted. We have believers, uh, fellow brothers and sisters that are in Ukraine, other parts of the globe, and I have seen some of their services during this war, during this conflict. They continue to have joy. Are they happy? I doubt it. Are they happy about the circumstances they find themselves in? Not at all. Are they joyful? Yes. Because joy is something given by God. It is a settled, stable, foundational reality. And notice what it is. It is a settled what? Peace contentment, and yes, delight. It is at the very least those three things that do not come and go depending on our circumstances. We desire the latest gadget 
We want it so bad. And then we finally get it. And then we want the latest gadget. We want things, we want a relationship, and we think if we just had this relationship, all of our problems would go away. This person is going to be my one, my soulmate. And then we are in relationship with that person. And they don't solve our problems, they bring theirs with them, and now we have new ones. The things of this life, the circumstances of this life, cannot give us joy. Only God can give us joy. And only in Him do we have peace. That settled calm, that settled serenity, we might even say, of knowing who we are in Him. And knowing that despite the circumstances, He is there with us. You notice Jesus with his disciples. Jesus goes up into a mountain to pray. And what does it say in the text? And he sent his disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee. Did you ever notice that in the text? What does Jesus know awaits these guys? He knows a storm is coming. He's in control of the storms. He sends them into the storm. I don't know where we got this false notion that if we follow God rightly, he steers us clear of any suffering, sorrow, pain, or storms. That is not the case. But what's the difference? In the storm, who comes to them? Who's with them? Jesus. Storms come. We have a settled peace. We also have a settled contentment. Paul says, I know how to abound, and I know how to be in need. Whatever situation I find myself in, he says, I am content. And godliness with contentment is great gain. To know that if we have everything that we want, or if we don't have anything that we want, that we are content in him, because he is infinite. And he is all we need. And delight. Some would say, well, that's a crazy way to live, isn't it? To not care about the ups and the downs? To not be racing after all the things that society says we ought to be desiring? That doesn't sound like a good way to live. No, it's not only a good way to live, it's the best way to live. It's the way to live that God has designed us to live. And there's great delight in that. Only found in a relationship with God. And one of the indicators of joy is gratitude. You can mark someone that does not have joy or is not expressing joy by complaining, griping, grumbling. This is an indication that joy is either not there or it's not being recognized in that person's life. But someone that has joy just oozes gratitude, overflows with gratitude. What do I need? I have everything I have in God. I lack nothing because I have him. So what is there to complain about? This is the fellowship, the peace offering. And this is the reality of God's presence in the midst of the nation of Israel. And this ought to be the reality of God's presence in us because of Jesus Christ. And I pray that it is. So as we look at the rest of the passage then, you'll note joy throughout it. The third place then this morning, looking at this definition, there is joy in relationship with God. And 19 through 21, there's this reality, again, of cleanness 
and uncleanness. And notice in verse 19b through 20. All who are clean may eat flesh, the flesh of the peace offering. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. What a blessing it is to be clean. All of us in here this morning, I am sure, have knowledge of our sin. We have regrets. We have moments in life where if we could, we would go back and we would change it. We have a sense of our uncleanness. We know that despite the person that we portray and project to people around us, despite the profile that we maintain online, we know who we are when there's no one else around. We have a, a, a highly developed sense of our own uncleanness. And yet, do we have the same sense, the same settled peace, contentment, and delight in the knowledge that Jesus Christ has declared us clean? That God has declared us as righteous as Christ. Do we have that sense? Do we have that knowledge? Do we have that joy? We read this passage and we see rules and regulations. We see labor and work. The intent of the passage is to show us, God, what joy there is to be declared clean by the only one that matters. By the one that is the judge of all things, as we have read this morning in our liturgy. He's the judge. And he has declared us clean in Jesus Christ. There ought to be great joy in that. And notice it's not only being clean, but also remaining clean. The first part of verse 19 and 21. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten, it shall be burned up with fire. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eat some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, that person shall be cut off from his people. There, there is a relational cleanliness. And so in Christ, we have been declared righteous. We have been declared as righteous as Christ. We've been declared clean. But as we move forward in that relationship with God, there are times where we still sin. And that breaks fellowship, the name of this offering. And yet because of Christ, we know that when we confess our sins, as Pastor Andy ably preached to us last Sunday, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is an ongoing cleansing because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When Christ declared from the cross, it is finished, he was not only talking about the sins of your past, because at that point, all of your sins were yet future. He was talking about all of your sin, past, present, and future. All of it is taken care of by him on the cross. Therefore, as we recognize our sinfulness to him through confession and repentance, he forgives us based on Christ and restores us into that relationship with him. It's the idea of progressive sanctification that we're going to be dealing with in a couple Sunday evenings. And so what an amazing thing. We read this, and oftentimes from our perspective, this just seems like another thing that was added on to the nation of Israel that would hold them down, that would keep them oppressed almost by all these 
rules and regulations. And no, what I see from this text is what I think is here in this text is the joy that comes from being in a relationship with God. To be declared clean and to be able to remain clean in an ongoing way. What, a, what joy there is in that. That our identity is not found in what other people say about us or what other people think about us. Our identity is not found in what other people say about us. Our identity is not found in what we have or don't have. Our identity is found in Christ. He is all we need. He is the one that declares who we are. We're in him. And that settled peace, contentment, and delight, that is, that is joy, to know who we are, because we are in him. Notice then in verses 22 through 26, there is joy in acknowledging God. There's a reminder here in these verses of the two prohibitions from the fellowship or peace offering. No one from the nation of Israel was ever to eat fat, nor were they ever to consume blood. There's a reminder here or additional information here in 22 through 26. Even if they came upon an animal that had been killed by a wild animal or something, or become trapped and was, was, was dead, even that animal, they could not ingest the fat. They could use the fat in that circumstance for other purposes, but they could never eat fat or drink or eat blood. Why? Again, as we mentioned when we were at this passage last time, gladly in the first place giving God our best. In that culture, what was the best part of the animal? And still perhaps in ours, what do we view as the best part of a cut of meat? The fat and it was a continual, perpetual acknowledgement in the nation of Israel that God is the one that should get our best. It's all his anyway. And so when they gave the fat to God, they were in essence saying, thank you God for this. This is yours and you have given it to me. And I thank you for that and I recognize that by giving the best back to you. That's the way of a settled life. That's the way of a joyful life. To gladly acknowledge and to gladly give to God our best. When we, though, take credit for something that we have not done, or take credit for something that is not ours, when we do not give our God our best, but we give him our leftovers or nothing at all, that is not the life of joy. That is not the life of acknowledging that all that we have comes from God. Our health is from him. Our ability to work is from him. All the things that we have are all his. Everything we are and everything we own is born from him. It's all his. And so acknowledging that gladly looks like giving him the best. We think that if we give God our best, that somehow robs us. The reality is, not giving God our best robs him, and thereby robs us. Because it, it twists our view of life. The joyful life says, I have all I need in God anyway. All that he gives me is a blessing. And so I gladly give God back what is his. It's all his anyway. That is a blessed way to live. That is a joyful life in Christ. But when we run around trying to get more, have more for us. That is not the joyful life. That is the self-centered life. That is not the life that God has created us for and called us to in Christ. 
Now, what about the blood, verses 26 and 27? The reality there is to gladly acknowledge God's sovereignty. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Life is God's to give and God's to take. And so as they took life in obedience to God, they recognized the sanctity of it. Life is sacred. And so no Jew was to ingest blood. It is a gracious and glad acknowledgement of God's sovereignty of all, over all things. And is that not, does that not spring forth from joy? This really, really bad circumstance that I'm not happy about, I understand this comes from God. This is by his hand. Therefore, it doesn't knock me off kilter. It, it doesn't disrupt me, ultimately. I'm settled and rooted and grounded in the reality. This is God's will. This is God's plan. If God's plan for his son included crucifixion, where do we get the idea that his plan for us includes no pain and suffering? But in the pain and suffering, we have him. And we can know and acknowledge and find delight in the reality that this is from his hand. Children rarely understand what parents do. That works the other way too, I suppose. <laughs> they don't get it. They haven't been down that road yet. And so they see restriction, they see discipline, they see their freedoms being restricted, and they, they push back against that. But in a joyful circumstance, the parents do what they do for the children out of love for them, and the children recognize the authority and their parents' love in all things. And so even in situations that they are not in approval of or, 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 or happy about, they can still find joy. Mom and Dad, I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me, but I trust your heart in this. I know that you're doing this for a reason and a purpose, and I believe that it's for my best interest, and so I will gladly submit to it. I'm not sure how many times that's happened in our child-parent relationships. That, that's the idea, and that's, that's the model for us. God is sovereign over all things. And that is not scary or should not be. That is, that is joy-inducing. Thanks be to him, whatever comes, comes from his good hand. Notice verses 28 through 36. There's joy in honoring God's servants. As I mentioned before, this extended passage talks about the contribution of the fellowship or peace offering that goes to the priests, the breast and the right thigh. The second best part of the animal was given to the priests. The best given to God, the second best to the priests, and then the rest for the worshiper. There is joy in thanking God for his servants and honoring God for those that serve him and serve him well. Now, we are all priests. We all have to serve God. There is perhaps a New Testament parallel, as, Peter, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, that those elders that serve well are worthy of double honor. There seems to be a sense in which those elders that are a blessing in our lives or ought to be, who tell us what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear, who reveal to us our blind spots, which typically causes us to be defensive, but should ultimately cause us to be grateful, that these individuals, there is joy when we honor them. Thank you, God, for having people in my life who help me become more like you. And that always looks like some form 
of conflict, some form of uncomfortableness, some form of difficult conversation. I'm not doing being what I ought to be. Thank God for people who love me enough to tell me that so that I can be all that God wants me to be. And so rather than looking at the messenger as the problem, we thank the messenger for both the message and for pointing us to the ultimate messenger, which is God. Lastly, then, there is joy in God's presence, verses 37 and 38. Notice, this is the law of the burnt grain, sin, guilt, ordination, and peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. What are these offerings a reminder of? God's presence is with his people, is in the midst of his people. And that should always bring joy. To know that the thrice holy creator of the universe, the almighty God, is with us. Not because we are special, not because we are better, because he has put his affection, his love on us. And what amazing joy that should bring. What can come against us if God is for us? Who can be against us? As Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is not pumping us up, or should not. I sometimes see those verses printed, posted, and otherwise used as sort of like, I have things I want to do, and since God's in my corner, I'm going to be able to do them. That's not what Paul is saying at all. <laughs> What Paul is saying is the things that God wants us to do and to be, we know we can do them despite our frailty, sinfulness, and disobedience. God will find a way. God's always the hero, not us. What a joy there is in God's presence. God's presence in our midst and in us as believers through the Holy Spirit. And so the response then this morning as we close is, are we experiencing this joy in Christ? Do we know who we are in him? Is that where we find our identity? Do we find our settled peace, contentment, and delight in our relationship with him? And is that expressing itself in our lives through our gratitude to him and to others? Are we known as individuals who share? Are we known as individuals who are generous? Are we known as individuals who are humble, grateful for all that we have, recognize that it all comes from God? Not clamoring about, and scrambling about for more, but recognizing we have infinite, we have infinity in us, God himself. What more could we possibly want or need? And out of an abundance of that joy, we thank him. And that's what this offering is. It is predicated upon the atonement offerings. And out of that atonement, the fact of the atonement, comes the delight of the joy of, the settled peace, contentment, delight of relationship with God. And that is what this offering is. I have fellowship with God. I have peace with my maker. That is priceless. That is celebra celebration inducing. That is cause for joy and a recognition of joy. And so I pray that we know that. We know that in Christ. He has declared us righteous in him. I pray that we have that settled in our hearts and that leads to joy and gratitude. God's presence is not to be onerous. Living life in him is not to be heavy and weighty in the sense of it's on us. It's on him. It's what he has done for us, in and through us. Let's give him the glory, 
him the praise for the joy that he brings. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, for your compassion, for your goodness, your kindness, your truth. You are truth. Love, you are love. Father, what is it that we feel we lack? It is this pride, this sense of you are not enough that is at the heart and the root of the very first sin. And it continues to plague us. How often we eagerly anticipate the launch of a new product, a new version of a product that we enjoy. We watch all of the trailers, we watch all of the conference footage, we watch all of the hype, the ads, the promotions. And we get it. And shortly thereafter, we're watching more ads for the latest version. If I just had this, if I just didn't have this, relationships. I so desperately want this relationship. I need this. Father, each time we do not recognize the joy that you give us, we find lack in you where there is no deficiency. We sin. We do not recognize the joy that you give us. We deny that settled peace, contentment, and delight that we find in relationship with you. And therefore, we lack gratitude. Father, help us to check ourselves even this morning. Are we thankful as we sit here this morning? Are we grateful people? As we reflect on the joy is found only in you. I pray that a recognition of that will cause us to be grateful. Father, is anybody here this morning that does not have joy? Anybody watching online that does not know this definition of joy because they do not know you? Father, I pray that they would ask myself or the person that brought them here this morning or the person that they know connected with Grace Baptist. Father, happiness comes and happiness goes. But thanks be to you for one of your many gifts, which is joy. Through all of life, we who know you and are known by you have a settledness about us, or ought to. We will not be shaken, because you cannot be shaken. We will not despair, even though the mountains fall into the seas. Because we serve, know, and delight in the one who made all things and is remaking all things new. May that be our experience today and always in you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name.